We'll be landing in just a few moments in Isaiah chapter 6, looking especially at verse 3, but a few other aspects as we get into that text. There was an article written last week uh, titled, Lloyd-Jones, God-Dominated Preaching, an article on the G3 Ministries blog. And if you know um, this man, Lloyd-Jones, his name, his first name isn't Lloyd, that's his last name, lloyd Jones. He's a Welsh preacher, born in 1898, died in 1981, uh, trained as a, medic, as a medical doctor and served as a medical doctor for uh, a number of years and yet turned from that rather excellent, and he, he was regarded very highly as a medical practitioner, but turned from that into preaching and to the church, to serve the church, and he served uh, several different churches in uh, Great Britain most notably Westminster Chapel in London. But he said this regarding the uh, the preaching that he saw that he was so troubled with. This is back in the 50s. The spark he used to ignite that revival, he said, was God-dominated preaching. God-dominated preaching. Well, what in the world is that? When we're preaching from his word, right? Well, you may take that for granted. You're, the, the sermon is going to come from the word of God. Not always. may reference it. He may hold up you know, the Bible, you know, big leather bound something or other, but does he open it? Is it even a he? Okay, let's not even go there. But God dominated preaching. What is that? Lloyd-Jones said it was preaching which focused on exalting the true and living God of Holy Scripture. And he identified three elements of God dominated preaching. The first one is a measure of God's holiness, a presentation of God's holiness. Who is this God who is holy? A second element is sovereignty, elevating and emphasizing God's sovereignty over all things. And finally, an emphasis on his glory, that God is a glorious God, that he deserves all glory and honor and praise. He is the one who is exalted in everything. We'll look at some of the the uh, quotations that he has to contribute to each of these these elements of God's holiness, his sovereignty, and his glory. We'll see all these emphasized very heartily, very heavily in Isaiah and uh, chapter 6 and verse 3 specifically. Each of these three elements is there. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn again to Isaiah chapter 6 and realize, of course, this is a, a famous, at least a well-known passage in Scripture. This is Isaiah having a vision of what's going on in heaven. It was a difficult time in the in the nation of Israel. One of the long-standing kings, well, a good king, you know, one of the few. Well, there were many good kings in the southern kingdom, and yet this one who uh, is named here as uh, excuse me, Uzziah, is also called Azariah, and he is the one that had served for many many years. And he says here in verse one of Isaiah six, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. In that year, when there was a big change in the society, this is approximately uh, seven mid-700s uh, B.C. This is a few decades before the, the, is, the, the exile or the destruction of the northern kingdom and then later, of course, the southern kingdom. But it is a time when all... The nation is very concerned for the longevity. Having seen this wonderful king and now he's gone, what are we going to do? His name, by the way, and it, it does make a certain amount of sense. He's called Azariah in Second Kings and Second Chronicles uh, a couple of times. Well, maybe not in Isaiah. He's, his, his, Azariah and Uzziah are very related, and I didn't put it on the screen, but Uzziah means my strength is Yahweh. 
my strength is Yahweh. And then Azariah means uh, Yahweh has helped. So you can see kind of the, the relatedness, a strength and a help. Yahweh, the God, is, is this one who supported and strengthened and helped this king, King um, Uzziah or Azariah. But notice it says, I saw, or excuse me, in the year of this king's death, this earthly temporal king, I saw the Lord sitting on his kingly throne. And the contrast between uh, one who was good, it was a good king, but he died. He left us. And we saw his body, and you even can read about how he died and, and why he uh, thought that he would take more to himself than he ought to have taken. That is to say, he was king, but he wanted to be priest as well. And God said, no, that's no, you, you're not going to do that. And God uh, struck him with leprosy, and he died of leprosy. But in contrast to that, a good king with some faults, and one of the main faults is he died. He's not here anymore. Now we see the king. We see the Lord uh, high and lifted up. He is, uh, he is high, and he is lifted up or exalted. He's honored. He's praised. And it says the train of his robe is filling the temple. The train of his robe. That's the hem of his garments. He, that is that uh, aspect of, of what is around him that just takes possession of this place, occupies the entire temple that uh, that he is dwelling in. You remember, of course, that when Solomon built the temple, this would be, uh, I guess, 200 years before this time of, of Isaiah's prophecy, that God himself came down and took up residence right there in that temple and lived there you know, in, in terms of the glory, the Shekinah, the, the glory cloud of God in that temple for from the mid-900s until the time of the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem, 586, somewhere in that time, that time. So 300, 400, 300. I can't do the math really quick. You do the math for me. Long time he was there. But the, the glory is there. And now Isaiah is brought right into that presence and sees the glory of God established. Kings come and go. Nations rise up and down. But God in his holy place, he is settled. He is established there and he occupies. It doesn't just take up the corner of a room kind of thing. He takes up the whole thing and then some. In fact, Solomon, when he, did it, when he dedicated the temple, he says, the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this little thing we built for you? And so Solomon knew and gave glory to God. He, Isaiah, sees the glory of the Lord uh, sitting on that throne high and lifted up. And he is the one who now occupies his his attention, having turned from the death of Uzziah, now recognizes the great king. And verse 2 here talks about those who are attending him. Now, maybe you hadn't thought about this, but the text is kind of really clear about how many of these angelic creatures there are. There are two. Two that are talking one to another. Uh, this one to this one. They respond to one another. So seraphim, when you see that, that suffix, I am it's not im like him, it's im in Hebrew. So seraphim stood before him, standing before the Lord, standing before the glory of God. And it says, describes them, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And there are these two seraph uh, beings, these heavenly creatures, angelic. They're only mentioned here in all of Scripture in this way. This word is used in other respects. In fact, it usually refers to something that is on fire or burning, something that has a, a kind of a consuming uh, uh, aspect to it. So is that what we can describe these as? We just don't know much about them. We know more about the uh, cherubim. I'll say it in kind of anglicized Hebrew, but these cherubim are mentioned more times. In fact, we know that Lucifer 
is the anointed cherub who covers, right? He is, he's a cherub. But seraph, uh, the, the seraph creatures are, are somewhat different, somewhat distinct, maybe right attendant to Christ himself or to the Lord in his glory there. And it says that they have six wings and it describes their function and purpose. And not to make too much about it, we want to get to verse three uh, soon, but it says two, each of these seraphs covered his face and also his feet, and then flew. You think, what, what's going on there? There is much to say about this idea of covering, or, or what does it mean to cover something? In, in some respects, it's just cover your nakedness. You know, put some clothes on, for Pete's sake. Uh, do that. But there's also a covering of shame or dishonor or, or uh, even a horror, co- being covered in horror. Uh, scripture talks much about that, especially the sackcloth element, girding themselves with sackcloth and horror will come over them. Ezekiel 7 verse 18 says that. Uh, or the shame of my face has covered me. Psalm 44 and verse 15. Well, we shouldn't attribute that, that shamefulness to heavenly angels that are right at, at Christ, at God's throne right there. We shouldn't, we shouldn't attribute some kind of, of horror in that regard because these are holy angels, angelic beings who are worshiping and, and celebrating Christ right there. But it has some measure of humility, of devotion, even that element of covering the feet. What's that about? Covering the feet. You remember how uh, feet are mentioned in relation to the worship of God or the sacred place uh, of God. And that is to say in Exodus uh, chapter 3, when God told Moses to take off his shoes for the place upon which he is standing is holy ground. And so that reminds us we're creatures. We need to honor with our with our faces even covered and our feet covered, so we're not uh, encumbered by the dirtiness of the world or even considering or, or reminding ourselves that we are creatures. We're talking about one who is the Creator, the eternal God, and so that there's that measure of humility. Apart from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, everything else is a created something, a being or a, a rock or a planet, or whatever it might be. Everything besides God, the triune Godhead, is a created thing. And so we have right place to be humble and to uh, put ourselves down in the place of him. Not to talk down about ourselves, but to recognize God is, is great. We're not. We are in his presence by his grace only. Not because we deserve to be there. Not because we're peers with God. Unless we think, just to finish that thought, Satan is was a... Well, he was created to be a cherub, one who was a leading, you know, the, the anointing, anointed cherub who covers, who was supposed to play a key role in God's economy and yet rebelled. He rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God. And so God cast him out of heaven and he entrusted the world in the rebellious world to him. And yet there is a day when all the fallen angels will be judged and uh, thrown into that lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not a place for people to go into, never supposed to be a place for people to go into. And yet, because of our rebellion, because of our sin, humans who are not in Christ will share the same punishment. Satan is not Lord of hell. He is a will be. He will be a sufferer, a punishment, a one who is under the punishment of God in hell. He's not Lord there. Anyway, these two wings also uh, enabled the the seraphim to fly. Why do they need to fly? Remember, because God is great. He's highly, he's great and highly exalted. And so they're uh, uh, around, flying around, perhaps the glory of God in that in the midst of that temple. Well, 
Isaiah's eyes are, are, had been fixed on the death of King Uzziah, but now they're fixed on the Lord and having seen and now hearing these seraphim around the throne. What do these uh, seraphim say? They call out and say to one another, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do they say it just once? No, they're repeating this. They're repeating this statement. Is that vain repetition? It's not vain when you're saying the truth in the presence of God. You're a seraph. You can, you can do no wrong. You are sealed in the, the righteousness that God provides for his faithful uh, creatures. They're calling out to one another. Didn't they get it the first time? What, what's the big deal? Is anybody else listening? Isaiah's there. For whose benefit are they speaking? Well, Isaiah will get the benefit of it, but it's God. God receives the glory. God, isn't that kind of heady? You know, God, why, are you, why do you need so much glory and praise? I mean, isn't that, that's kind of proud, isn't it? Not if you're God. Not if you are the only God. Not if you're the one who ought to be glorified and honored and praised. There is this expression, a continuous expression, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Host, the whole earth is full of his glory. These are true statements. And it's revolutionary. This is countercultural. This is anti um, contramundum, if you know that phrase, against the world, because the world says, no, th- this is the only place we see. What we see is what is, and, and we have the, the sovereignty in ourselves, and, and we want to be masters of our own fate, and, and we're it. There is no God. We can't see him. He's, he's never shown himself. Boy, if, if there were a God, wouldn't it be nice for him to just t- show us or tell us that he's there? Just the height of arrogance and proud uh, insolence against God who has revealed himself time and time and time again especially in his son, our Lord Christ. But they speak, as Dr. Martin, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, they speak, these seraphim speak, of God's holiness, first of all here. His holiness, and of course, the other aspects we'll look at in a moment. This is what is called a trihagion. Hagion, hagios in Greek means holy. And so in, in Greek, trihagion means a threefold statement of, of what is holy, 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 holy. This is not the only time we see this emphasis. Many times we see a twofold repetition, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, or amen and amen, or, or you know, other, uh, other places we can see a twofold thing. But when we have a threefold repetition, this indicates something that is not something that is a complete expression. We're talking about something that is uh, a supreme or unmatched characteristic or element or concern that we have when something is repeated three times. When David, the death of his son Absalom, uh, lamented, lamented his son, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And you think, okay, were you talking again now, David? It's his son Absalom. He is just heartbroken over this one. Now, why is he doing that, Absalom? You know, you fill in the backstory behind him. But he's just lamenting the death of his son, but also that David is the one who caused it, right? With his sin, with Bathsheba, and covering it up, lying about it, and murdering, of course, Uriah. And God said, you're not going to die, but the son born to you is going to die, and the sword shall never depart from your house. Because of what you've done, you've defiled the name of God. Among all the nations, they're going to scorn me. They're going to mock me because you, you're my chosen guy. You're my anointed one. And what do you do with it? And so David says, I know Absalom is dying because of my sin. He didn't desert. Well, Absalom did his own things. But it was David. He says, would that I die instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. 
Jeremiah comments on the, the false hope of the people in Jerusalem at the day when Babylon is right knocking on the door and about ready to come in. He's, he said to the people, Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah 7 and verse 4, do not trust in lying words, saying, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Like it's unthinkable that God would somehow destroy his, his home, right? This is where he lives. And yet, Jeremiah says, don't put your faith in these things. Put your faith in the certain destruction of God, the judgment that is coming upon you because of your disobedience. Don't regard this as an untouchable place. No, he's going to come in. Nebuchadnezzar is going to sit right here. And it's going to be bad. There are some other elements of where this repetition, this threefold repetition is made. But one of them, and it repeats almost verbatim, this, well, part of the, this verse anyway, and it's in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. Revelation 4, 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. It speaks about his eternality, his unchangeableness, the sovereignty that he has. He's the Almighty One. He is the Lord God. Holy, holy, holy is this Lord. What does it mean to be holy? When we often think about holiness, we think of moral perfection or moral purity, which is definitely uh, emphasized in scripture the the idea of being clean or undefiled uh, uh, like i mentioned about sunday best right put on your sunday clothes that's usually stuff that doesn't have stains on it grass stains food stains uh holes whatever else it is undefiled it is excellent it is virtuous even we can see some measure of this element like in first peter chapter one when peter speaks to us saying as obedient children not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. First Peter 1, verse 14 and 15, uh, verse 16, rather, those three verses say that, that we should be holy in our conduct. So we see a moral aspect, a moral perfection. We can see the same thing in Revelation 22 and verse 11, the contrast and the 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 certain destiny of those who are in Christ versus those who are outside of Christ first, those who are outside of Christ, let the one who does unrighteousness still do unrighteousness, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. What's God doing? He is handing people over to destruction, and there's no hope. Like Hebrews 9.22 or 7 says, It's appointed a man once to die, and then comes judgment. Don't think that people in, in purgatory or in hell can have a second chance. No. You remember the rich man and Lazarus? You know, God, deliver me from this thing. Or at least send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and put it on my tongue that I may be relieved because flames are killing me. Well, there is no deliverance for those who are outside of Christ. They're going to continue their unrighteousness, continue in their filth, their disgust. But... It says, Revelation 22 and verse 11, Let the one who is righteous still do righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. There is that confirmation of righteousness. There's no possibility of, of moral imperfection after death for those who are in Christ. So when we think about holiness, we think in that regard, moral perfection. But probably the more predominant thought in relation to God himself, yes, he is, he is morally perfect, he is excellent, he's virtuous, and yet there's another element of holiness that I think is emphasized more often, and that is to say something that is set apart, something that is separate from something else. To make something holy is to, to designate it for a, a specific use. It's used, we use this kind of phrase, well, the, the word in Hebrew probably relates to a root that is to cut something, but it's to cut 
in the sense of separating this part from the other part. This can be used for whatever purpose, but this part over here, we're going to use it for a special purpose. Uh, it could be used with cuts of meat, even, you know, the different cuts of, of uh, you know, tenderloin versus uh, what's, what's ground up into hamburger, different cuts of cloth that we can talk about, different... Uh, well, if you're in my family, you know that, that, that when the birthday cinnamon rolls come out, it's the ones that are in the middle. Those are the better ones. Not They're all good, but boy, the, the choice, the, the best ones are right there in the middle. So there are different cuts. You see something that's designated, and usually, of course, the birthday person gets them. But there is that idea of being set apart, separate. It is something other than the rest. It is sacred. It's removed from a mundane use. Maybe you have, these are the special pair of scissors. These are for paper only versus you can cut metal, you can do whatever with these other ones. But these are the holy, set apart, sacred scissors. It's something that is even transcendent, something that's above the other things, uh, something that is supreme or great, or as we saw in verse 1, lofty and exalted. This is there, There's something different about this. So you might refer to it as a majestic otherness. In fact, some theologians call God the other, because you have God and you have everything else. And we think, well, isn't that kind of, that's kind of, I don't like that idea. I'm with, I'm with Hitler, and I'm with, uh, well, Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of us are clumped together. No, you're clumped together in one category, category, creator, God, and creature, or created thing. And yet, out of that created thing, there are those who are sacred, set apart for God. There are some elements that are set apart for God, a holy city, a holy mountain, a holy vessels in the tabernacle and the temple were set apart for God's service. But we people are those who will endure into eternity because of what Christ has done. Leviticus 11, uh, verse 44 says, I am Yahweh your God, therefore set apart, set yourselves apart as holy and be holy, for I am holy. And he goes on and, and describes more about that. Leviticus 11, verse 44, uh, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 7, and Leviticus said, You shall set yourselves apart as holy and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. Uh, going back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, he talks about the holiness of God and speaks about the the aspects here. Holiness, uh, he says, you will never have a knowledge of sin unless you have a true conception of the holiness of God. And that, if you don't mind, that is one of the key errors of our day. We just don't appreciate that God is holy. We, we focus on the idea that God is love. In fact, he speaks about that in another uh, quotation that we will see. And I, I think it's back this next one. He says, it is the holiness of God that demands the cross. So without starting with the holiness, there is no meaning in the cross. It is not surprising that the cross has been discounted by modern theologians. It's because they have started with the love of God without his holiness. Holiness is an important aspect. To, to realize that God is holy means, well, I'm not. I'm subject to his wrath. If he is morally perfect and majestically other than me, then I'm undone. And that's Isaiah's response. Woe to me, woe to me, for I am undone. And he focuses on his lips especially. But we recognize that God is holy. He is the one, the holy other. He is the one who is separate from us, and we recognize that. We see, by the way, I was going to point this out. Let me pull up that slide again. That we see the name uh, Lord in verse 1. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of his robe. And then we see Yahweh. We see this different name. Maybe in your translation it, it appears as uh, uh, small caps, right? It's, it's all caps, but some of them are smaller, small caps, Lord. That's translating the, the name of Yahweh. You see the title of Yahweh, Adonai, kind of like president or, or uh, prime minister or something like that. He is Lord, but then we see his name written, Yahweh, or 
changing the Y to a J and a W to a V, uh, Yahweh in that regard, but also Yahweh or Jehovah. Sometimes you see it translated, it's the same God, a title versus a name. Happens with Jesus Christ, right? Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Jesus the Christ or Yeshua HaMashiach, uh, Jesus the Messiah. So Messiah is the title. Jesus is his name. Yahweh is God's name. And we see it written back here in verse 3 of Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. Maybe if you have NIV and a few other uh, not as popular translations or not as carried translations, it says almighty. Uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. It's not a bad translation. When it says Lord of hosts, we're talking about armies. We're talking about soldiers. We're talking about military folks that are gathered around, military men or troops. Uh, Even in this regard, the heavenly entourage of Yahweh, those who are surrounding him. The seraphim probably aren't considered the the hosts of Yahweh. They're the ones who are right there worshiping God. But outside of that, there are all these these ministering angels sent to uh, serve those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews Two, I think, is where that speaks of. And we see, though, that he is the Lord of all the armies. Do you remember when our Lord Christ was in the garden and he said, don't you know, I can call legions upon legions of angels to deliver me, to deliver me from from the Sanhedrin, to deliver me from from, um, Herod and from Pontius Pilate. Don't you? I can do that. And God is sovereign and powerful to do that. But this must be fulfilled. I must do what I must do at this time. Yahweh is Lord of hosts. This emphasizes, we saw his holiness, now this is emphasizing his sovereignty. He is sovereign over everything. Isn't it the one, you know, earthly speaking, isn't it the one with the largest army that kind of has say of what's going on in a country? Yes, God has the largest army by far that cannot be killed by mortal weapons, right? No weapon formed against us shall prosper. But what do we do? We wage uh, war not as with people. You know, we're not... We don't use carnal weapons. We have God on our side. We're, we are uh, militating, fighting according to his power. Yahweh is Lord of hosts. It emphasizes his sovereignty, emphasizes his power, his authority, even his judgment. Just a few verses on these, because we see this all throughout Scripture. Yahweh of hosts, Lord of hosts. One of the most popular uh, or well-known, again, passages is when David comes before Goliath, the Philistine giant, Right? Nine feet tall, which is approximately the the height of this wall. Nine feet tall versus just an ordinary guy like me. Here's Goliath. And David says, you come to me. This is 1 Samuel 17, 45. David said to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. David wasn't ignorant of all the weapons he had, that, you know, many ways that David, that Goliath could kill him. I see all that stuff, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the battle lines of Israel, whom you have reproached. It's almost like David says, I pity you, Goliath, because you have put yourself against Yahweh of hosts. It's not going to end well for you. I'm going to kill you, feed your flesh to the birds of the air, but it's God you have reproached, God you have defied. Yahweh of hosts, he will fight for us. Yahweh of hosts is enthroned above the cherubim of the second Samuel 6 and verse 2. Yahweh of hosts is God over all Israel, uh, David says in Second Samuel 7 and other places that we can consider. We, we see that judgment belongs to God. He is the one who counsels, and there's no counsel that can be lifted up against him. Isaiah um, 5 and verse 16 says, Yahweh of hosts will be lofty in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Another passage very familiar to us, Isaiah 9 and verse 
uh, 6 talks about a child will be born, a son will be given, and so forth. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So it's not like he is somehow not powerful enough to do these things. No, he's, he's going to, whatever he wants to do, he's going to do. He is sovereign over all these things. Looking back at uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher, he describes sovereignty as, or in this way, the sovereignty of God means that all that exists and happens does so because he wills it. Wait a minute, what? All that exists and happens does so because he wills it. Sovereignty is not to be considered as an attribute of God in the sense of being a quality which exists in God, such as omnipotence or omniscience, all-powerfulness or all-knowingness. He acts sovereignly because of who and what he is. God is God. To assert divine sovereignty is to assert the supremacy of God. God is God. There's nobody like him. He does not share his, his glory with anybody else, which leads us into our final point. He is the one who is other, other. He is holy. And he does all these things in holiness. Looking back at verse 3 of Isaiah, it says, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. Isaiah sees the temple filled with the glory of God, and yet it is the whole earth that will be filled. Back in Numbers God says to Moses, Numbers 14, verse 20, says, All the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. All the earth will be filled with the glory of God, glory of Yahweh. What is this glory? It is the knowledge of God. And Isaiah 11, verse 9 says, Those who do evil, or they will do no evil, nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. We look forward to that day. I mean, you know, so much of the earth's surface is covered by water. At one time, the whole earth was covered by water. But we want and we look forward to that day when the knowledge of Yahweh. Now, everybody knows that there's a God, but we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But in that day, the knowledge of God will prosper and people will love God. They will draw near to him. The nations of the earth will bring their, their treasures to God in Jerusalem, to the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in the, in the throne of David, his father. The knowledge of the glory of Yahweh, Habakkuk 2 and verse 14 says, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Says it again in verse 3 of Habakkuk, that the earth is full of his praise, the glory that is due him. This idea of glory is the, the worship, the, the substance. In fact, this word glory has to do with something that is heavy, something that is weighty. If you were to, I mean, this is a very silly example, but you, you contrast, uh, this is the only way you can tell a quality vehicle versus an a shoddier model, is what does the door sound like when you close it? You know, you ever you ever done that? You, you, you close the door and it's kind of like a tinny kind of a sound, hollow, empty, and then you close the door of a fine quality vehicle and it's a... And the car doesn't shake or rattle or move. That is substance. That is, that is glory that God describes about himself. It is something that is heavy. It is something that is, it is uh, not hollow. It's not false. It's not hypocritical. It is... God in his heaviness, there he is. Paul makes this contrast in 2 Corinthians about the empty or transient sufferings that we have in this life versus the glory, the, the, the eternal weight of glory that is bound for us, those who trust God. And so that contrast there, we see God's glory on display. The whole earth is full of his glory. Everything gives, gives, gives glory to God in some respect now, even disobedient because they're set apart for the honor of Christ Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, in heaven, earth, under the earth. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't see that perfectly yet, but we look forward to that day. When Moses asked, Lord, let me see you. 
this is in, requested in Exodus 33, revealed in Exodus 34, God says, you can't see me and live. No man can see my face and live. I will hide you, right? Exodus 33, you can read the, the context there. I'll hide you in the cleft of rock, put my hand over you, and when I have passed, when my, my glory has passed by, then I'll remove my hand. You'll see my backsides, but you can't see my face. And that's what happened. What was that glory? You read about it in Exodus 34. We hear about God. We hear about his characteristics, his perfections, his attributes. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is long-suffering. He's all these things and more you can read about in Exodus 34. That is the glory of God, the knowledge of God, the, the substance of who he is. When the prophet was to to proclaim the coming of Christ, we read it in, in John, John 1, referring back to this, this you know, who, who are you then, John? I'm the one calling, I'm a voice, right? And I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for a God, that every valley be lifted up, every mountain hill be made low, that the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley, then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Sovereignty, holiness, glory, all here in Isaiah chapter 40. Much more can be said about the glory of God. Let's see one thing that... that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the glory of God, and that is to say, the glory of God is the essential being of God. It includes beauty, includes majesty, better still, perhaps the word splendor. It, of course, includes the idea of greatness, of might, and of eternity. They're all summed up in this one word, glory, and we really can't get beyond that. He says further that this is the thing that troubles me so much about so much modern evangelism. This is back in the 50s, by the way. It's all in terms of some benefit to men, and God seems to be forgotten. We're, we're so much concerned about self-help. You know, you can be a better man, want to live your best life now. When, you know, you're, you're a good person, just kind of you need a little bit of God's help to, to pull out the greatness that is within you. You need to repent. You need to confess your sins before God. Fall on your face before this holy, sovereign, glorious God. When the angels, and we'll close with this, when the seraphim talk about the attribute of God that really consumes their thoughts that they repeat three times holy 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 why didn't they say all powerful all powerful all powerful or loving 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 or merciful it's because the holiness drives everything else god being who he is in himself drives every other aspect of how he relates within the triune godhead and how he relates to the cre the created uh, beings whether the the uh, the earth and the moon and the sun the moon and the stars or people and all the animals and the plants and every living thing is for God's glory, separate from God, and yet God has created these things to emphasize his sovereignty, he is over all these things, and to receive glory. God the Father wanted to glorify his Son, and of course Jesus said, I glorify me, you have glorified me, and God the Father replies to him, I have glorified you and I will glorify you again, in his death, in his burial and his resurrection. God wanted his son to be celebrated as the Savior, as the Lord, as the, the friend of sinners, lost and ruined sinners. Let us draw near. We, we'll see, maybe we'll look at it next time. How did Isaiah respond? How are we to respond? What, how does God respond to our response? What is this all doing? When we come before a holy, sovereign, glorious God, we fall on our feet, on our excuse me, on our faces as dead men, as John, the beloved apostle, fell on his face before the Lord Christ. That should be our response. When we are inclined or invited or enticed to sin, we remember, I serve a holy, sovereign, glorious God. 
I'm not going to betray him by going in this direction away from Christ. He's commanded me. He has entrusted this is the way you ought to go. This is life for me to turn to death and destruction and ruination and despair and ruination of relationships. I don't want to do that. I want to be God's own person. God is the one who saved me. I want to be his. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the message of this this uh, revelation in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, you were so kind to show him yourself in this regard and to show what is so crucial for us, not just back in the 700s BC, but now in the 21st century. You are holy. You are sovereign. You are glorious. And we pray that this reality, this truth would be so much in our own lives, but also in this whole world, that there will be that time that you promise when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray that that day would come soon. Please help us to be ready. In fact, Christ said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We hope so. We want him to be so. We want, if he comes for us, we want to be found faithful in him. Please help us to have such a vision of our Lord that we would be taken up with your wonderful beauty, your otherness that is so perfect. And we, having been separated for your glory, for your holiness, uh, elements or or aspects of your sovereignty, help us to fulfill our obligations very well, to glorify Christ, to kiss the Son, lest he become angry and perish in the way. Blessed are all those who find refuge in him. Thank you. Pray that each one would be finding refuge, be saved, and being sanctified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful. Amen.